This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast we speak to all kinds of great entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. This episode is brought to you by Mortar and Pestle, a Toronto-based pharmacy changing the game. Completely focused on patient care, the company's fully digital platform allows you to refill, transfer, get a new prescription remotely without having to leave your home. Forget lineups and wait times, stay safe, and get your prescription delivered. You can also book your COVID vaccine now online hassle-free. To get started, go to mortarpestle.ca. That's M-O-R-T-A-R pestle.ca. In 2010, Kirk Simpson founded or co-founded Wave, I should say, and has since led the company through tremendous growth to support 400,000 active small businesses. 300 plus people are now on the Wave team and over 100 million in funding has been raised from investors around the world. Wave was acquired in June of 2019 by H&R Block for over $537 million, the seventh largest tech exit in Canada since 2001. Wave has won numerous awards for leadership, culture, and innovation, and Kirk himself was honored as one of Canada's most admired CEOs in 2019. And in this one, we get into the origin story of Wave and the company's rise to prominence on the fintech stage company sale to H&R Block and why that partnership has meant a nice fit for both sides, Wave's unique culture and Kirk's leadership from the top, lessons learned through entrepreneurship and pieces of advice he shares with his kids, and much, much more. So with that long-winded intro out of the way, let's get to the show. Here is Wave's Kirk Simpson. rewind back late 2009 early 2010 what was going on in your life career-wise how did you and james meet and what was the motivation for launching wave so our with james and i our wives had gone to university together and so as i started to to date what would soon become my wife uh, i got introduced to james and we started to to just hang out as friends and he was, you know, very different than me. He was much more laid back and um, we were both fun loving, but he was he was definitely more chill than I was. And so I was sort of drawn to his energy because it was very different than mine. You know, I forget the number of years, but call it probably 10 years that we were good friends and tr- traveled together as as families, as as my wife and I started to have children and and he had kids as well. And we just started talking about, you know, entrepreneurial pursuits. And I think we were both really bored, you know, in our day jobs. And I had started a couple of companies before he was itching to, to sort of branch out on his own. And we started to talk about different ideas. And in 2009 started centering around this, you know, software for small businesses idea. What were you doing at the time? What were your day jobs? So uh, James was the CTO of a small business tax prep company, and I was working for a company called Green Living that was a magazine, trade show, website company, media company. And yeah, I mean, I think just both of us had had, you know, put off entrepreneurial pursuits for a while and just felt like it was time to to give it a go. You have an entrepreneurial background though, right? You started a few businesses after college. 
So the early days of the internet, um, we were building at first a directory of uh, outdoor adventure, you know, companies, uh, and had morphed that into a webcasting company where we were webcasting, you know, large scale adventure events from around North America at a time when it was really new and fun. Went bankrupt in 2000 with the dot com collapse. No surprise there because we really were having a tough time figuring out how to make that model work. You know, Wi Fi was terrible and dial up was, you know, 56, whatever seconds, megabytes per second or whatever it was, gigabytes or kilobytes per second, I should say. Yeah. Uh, forget about megabytes. Um, and and then in, I forget the year, but somewhere in and around probably 2005, we started uh, another venture with uh, three or four other people that I had met at that point in the technology ecosystem and really found with that one that we couldn't make it work part-time while we all had day jobs. And so, you know, it had been a long winding sort of entrepreneurial on and off type career up to that point. I was working uh, within media companies that were making the transition to online during my day job. So I was really surrounded by tech, but it wasn't until 2009 or 10 when we started Wave that we got serious about it. So what was the landscape for accounting software like at the time? I'm guessing QuickBooks was a viable option for many. Who else was in the mix and what did you guys see as the opportunity here? So, yeah, I mean, QuickBooks, everybody knows it. If you have to buy accounting software, you know, it's the go-to traditionally. Obviously, at that time, most of it was, you know, CD-ROMs and QuickBooks was kind of late to the party in terms of the cloud migration. And so there was, QuickBooks was the dominant leader, but you know, the cloud migration was going pretty rockily for them. Uh, and so you had upstarts like FreshBooks, um, you know, a great Toronto uh, startup. Uh, you had Zero coming out of uh, New Zealand. And, you know, over the course of the next couple of years, uh, it was pretty amazing, you know, all props to Intuit that they did a very good job of recognizing that cloud was where it was at. They were going to have to change their business model to go to SaaS and really invest in that product. And probably by 2014, 15, it was once again the dominant. The one thing that I do want to point out and why we were excited about the space is because you know, the more we dug into it, the more we realized that what some would refer to as micro small businesses, you know, zero to five employees were upwards of 95% of all businesses in North America. And, you know, depending on the research you saw, 60 to 70% of them used shoeboxes, spreadsheets, and Word docs. So while QuickBooks was you know, the market leader for those choosing to buy accounting software, vast majority of them didn't. And quite frankly, that's still true today. There's just a huge opportunity here. Um, this is very hard to execute because it's hard to get these small business owners off the sidelines. Did that drive your decision to make your product free from the beginning? A hundred percent. You know, how do you get somebody from using spreadsheets and shoeboxes and Word docs into software when they hate using the software to begin with, and certainly they hate paying a monthly fee uh, for the rights to use software they hate using. So um, yeah, it was it was a big driver for us. And and the other thing that was a driver was, 
you know, we were watching what Mint was doing in personal finance, you know, screen scraping your bank transactions to bring it into software automatically. We were looking at those trends. They were offering it for free. They were monetizing through data. And we thought that that model was even more ripe to bring some innovation into small business accounting. Who has the software development background? Is that you or is it James? Um, James, uh, you know, as I mentioned, was CTO of a small business tax prep company. So he knew A, the accounting space and B, um, software development, not in modern languages. So we had to hire software engineers from day one, but he very much had the technical background, both in the domain and, you know, in engineering in general. And then I had worked uh, at media companies and built, you know, a bunch of software um to manage content behind the scenes and then, you know, web presence in the front end for, for customers. So I think, you know, we had it sort of surrounded, but not perfectly nailed. And so, you know, it took some, some bootstrap money to get it going because we needed to hire software engineers from day one. Did you and James have a number in mind in terms of what you were comfortable with contributing as you were bootstrapping the business? Yeah, I had a number in mind and it was zero because I couldn't afford to. Uh, and and yes, James had a specific number in mind that uh, that he and his wife felt like they could put into the business. And so, you know, that probably lasted us, you know, in hindsight, if I can remember, you know, six to nine months, which was, you know, amazing to get us off the ground. I mean, I, I don't think we'd be here today if if they couldn't have done that. And so that was huge for us to to get off the ground and get a bit of early momentum before we needed to raise outside money. Who did you raise from initially? Who did the seed round? Was it Omer's? It was a long drawn out process where in the summer of 2010, we did a what many people call a friends and family round, and in our case was a friends round. There was no family in it. And so we raised, uh, I guess, about 100000 or $125,000 from a few friends who were willing to put in, which again was just a game changer to keep us going. Um, and then all through the summer, we were, you know, raising pitching at, you know, various angel groups, pitching to anybody who would listen. We probably did, I would say, 100 pitches. And it wasn't until the late fall that we started to get some traction with a couple who would commit. Uh, ironically, one of them was my neighbor, and he knew a bunch of other folks who were interested in investing in tech. And so he brought those together. Uh, so we probably raised, you know, 500 Six hundred thousand there. It was really hodgepodge, and I think it speaks to you know the change in the in the ecosystem that you know this was a massive, massive months, months, months long struggle for us. It culminated in Omer's Ventures us becoming their first investment when they put five hundred k into our seed round in April two thousand eleven. But that round had been open and and worked on for almost a year at that point. How do you square this idea of giving away the product for free with this pressure from investors to generate profits at some point? Really difficult. Uh, and I would say, you know, when you go down this road, you know you're going to have to raise a lot of money and that it is a 
uh, swing for the fences type model. I wouldn't have changed it for anything, but it was super challenging and quite frankly led to, you know, heavy dilution because, you know, it took us a while to figure out a model that, that can work. Uh, we're still not a profitable company, but, um, but on a path towards that. And it's a difficult road, but one that I wouldn't change because I think, you know, it really gave us an opportunity to, to make a mark in the industry. And quite frankly, uh, is a huge rallying cry for the company in terms of, you know, an opportunity to make a, a difference in a small business owner's life to make them, you know, on top of their financial life in a way that they probably wouldn't without wave. Mm-hmm. You now have 400,000 businesses on the platform. Do you remember how many customers you had back in 2011 when you raised that 500K? Um, well, you know, I think Peter Carisha, who who did the investment while he was at Omer's Ventures and has continued to be, you know, a great friend and, and came to work at Wave for a couple of years and helped us sell the business, he would tell you that by April 2011, what really struck him was that we were starting to find distribution very, very difficult to acquire companies in the small business landscape at a cost of acquisition that can make sense, especially when your model is free. And so by that point, you know, all these numbers kind of blend for me, but we were probably signing up, you know, 50 small business owners a day and all through zero dollar, you know, free distribution channels. And so I think that's what really drew him was, wow, these guys are sort of cutting through. And I think all through our fundraising history, I think what made us stand out was, you know, when we were suddenly signing up a thousand small business owners a day and then 2000 and most of them through free channels. And I think that really got people's attention on how are we doing this? And Ultimately, of course, what's the path to monetization, but how are you breaking through this really, really challenging uh, distribution curve? So what was the plan then for monetization? You've mentioned testing advertising as a potential route in the past, but that was abandoned, I believe, a few years ago. So if not advertising, then what was the long-term plan here? Yeah, I mean, if you think back to that time, there were a couple of really interesting things going on. Number one was, you know, I've described Mint. And so the model there was, okay, we have all of this information about you, you know, hopefully not in a scary way, but instead in a way that says, how can we tailor offers to your financial situation that might make it better for you to manage your finances? So whether or not that's, you know, primarily it was driven by credit card offers that were tailored or mortgage offers or those kinds of things. The other interesting thing that was going on at that time was, you know, Groupon um, and group buying opportunities. And so as we looked at that, we thought, well, we're going to have a tremendous amount of data about these small business owners. They get, you know, none of the group buying advantages or corporate, you know, offers that a large company does. And so how can we band this group together and say, okay, you're paying X at Rogers, you know, we'll tell you how much the average person's paying. And if Bell has a better offer for small business, how can we tailor it to this group? We like the idea and, you know, Mint was proving it could scale. Ultimately, Mint proved it could scale only to a certain level. But, and that's really what we found was that as we started to, to roll that out, 
the amount of small business owners that we would need on the platform uh, truly engaged in and acting on these offers would be so significant to to make the the numbers work at scale that it probably wasn't going to be the best model for us. Thankfully, at that time, in probably you know 2011, 12, I started talking to this this guy named Les Whiting, who was at a company at the time I think called Beanstream. We originally went to speak to them about about payroll and how we could fund you know potential uh, payroll disbursements in our payroll business that we were thinking of getting into. And ironically, what ended up happening was he had left Beanstream, but they had left him on the website. And so I reached out to him on LinkedIn, and it's one of those stories of you know truly, you know, just pure luck. And ultimately, he proved to be, you know, probably the most important hire and had as big a role as either James and I in the success of Wave, because what he brought to us was a deep, deep domain knowledge around financial services and especially payments. And ultimately, in, again, these years blend for me, but probably 2013, we started to see that embedded financial services within our software was where the market was going and we could be, you know, at the forefront of that and it would be a tremendous way to monetize. Ah, and this all culminates with the launch of payments by wave. Correct. Card processing, which includes debit, credit and prepaid cards, as well as ACH fees are taken as a percentage of, of the transaction, excuse me. So is this a viable revenue stream for you guys? It is very much so. And I think, you know, what's kind of cool about it is that we we started it in 2013. Uh, we partnered with Stripe on it. Stripe at the time when we first started talking to them and Les will tell this story well of, you know, going down to the Stripe offices and it being, you know, 20, 30 people uh, and look at what Stripe is today. And then in 2000, near the end of 13 and into 14, we started building our own payment rails because we needed more control and, quite frankly, more of the economics. And that was probably the start of what you know really changed the, the whole trajectory of Wave was embedding payments, watching the industry really you know take on that theme of more and more software companies embedding payments into what they did. And you know, as we rolled out payroll as well, and have now rolled out Wave Money, which is a full-fledged small business bank account in the U.S., um, it's been really fun to be on the forefront of embedding financial services into software. And so much of that kudos goes to less. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about these offerings, payroll by Wave and Wave Money? Really, the the concept is how do you offer you know a full suite of services for small businesses so that they can do everything in one place. And so as we you know truly embed wave money into our offering, the concept is to go from invoicing to to payment from your customer to money in your account in fifteen seconds to the opportunity to spend on a card. Uh, and pay your bills, have all of that automatically reconciled in your accounting software without you having to do anything, and then out to tax through our partnership with H&R Block. And really, the goal is to to simplify small business owners' financial life, make it super easy for them to run their business so that they can spend their time you know, doing something else, which they love. 
Let's go back to the customer acquisition side of things for one moment. At one point, you guys had a lucky break that allowed you to acquire 200,000 users. What was that? Yeah. Well, one of our uh, developers, um, Nathan, who's still with us today, and came to us and said, I-, I see this new Google Chrome store that is popping up. And I want to integrate us. And, and I'm putting integrate in air quotes here because the integration was you know, really, really lightweight. And I'll never forget, he said to us, you know, it's going to cost $5. Are we okay with that? At the time, we were like many startups that we were, James and I would get an email when people signed up for Wave. And as I said, we'd probably get 40 to 50 emails uh, a day at this point, which were all fun to watch flow in. And my kids had woken me up early one weekend in, in April, and I checked my email and I had hundreds of these emails. And I was like, what is going on? And so, you know, James and I got online and we started talking back and forth. And suddenly it became clear that the editor of the Google Chrome store had chosen our listing to feature. And so over the course of the next months and years, uh, that led to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of free signups, including being featured in a Google Chrome store commercial. And it, it was just an amazing ride. And again, a lucky break. Thankfully, you know, Nathan had brought that idea forward and it just, you know, I I would say pretty definitively that we wouldn't have raised our A round uh, with CRV had it not been for that integration. The best $5 the company's ever spent. Amen. Okay. So I wanted to move on and ask you about the acquisition. You guys were acquired in June, 2019 by H&R Block for over 537 million. That's the seventh or eighth largest tech exit in Canada since 2001. Huge praise. Um, I've got a few questions here. So firstly, how long were you guys in talks with H&R? So the amazing thing about, about H&R Block and the acquisition was that, you know, if, you, if I take you back to that time in 2019, uh, beginning of 2019, we're raising around and, uh, you know, talking to all sorts of people through the process. And I think the CFO of Block, Tony, came up to see us in January of 2019. And we just had a you know conversation about what was going on in the landscape and what we were doing, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we didn't think much of it. We knew that a tax integration at some point was really important, but we had a good conversation. Then we left it at that. In February or March of 2019, I guess February 2019, Tony reached out and said, you know, our relatively new CEO, Jeff Jones, uh, wants to come up and see you guys and and hear about what what you're doing in more detail. And ultimately, you know, to put it in perspective, the deal gets announced on June 11th. So it went quick. There was really good alignment um, between Jeff and I. Jeff's a, a really amazing CEO, former president of Uber in 2016, former CMO of Target, an amazing background, an amazing person, real uh, alignment on value and culture. And that's how quickly the deal came together a lot because of the fact that we were, you know, far down the road of, of doing a raise. And so, you know, anytime you get competitive pressure, 
within the raise process or the acquisition process. Um, generally, you know, good things happen in terms of speeding it up and making people, forcing people to make decisions. Do you think your role has changed since the company's ownership structure has shifted? I would say that, you know, if you if you go piece by piece on it, I think instead of, you know, having to raise funds on a consistent basis and um, manage the board, I now report into Jeff and, you know, my communication and my alignment with him is, you know, very similar to managing a board dynamic and, and ensuring that you have buy-in for what you're doing and, and just ensuring that there's there's really great alignment on where we're going and how we're doing things. You know, the 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 pluses are that you know Block is very long-term focused. Um, we don't have the fundraising cycles that we used to, um, and the sometimes unnatural things that we had to do to ensure that the next round of funding you know would come in. Uh, on the flip side, you know, we've got a very different dynamic to manage with, you know, attracting and retaining great talent um, because you don't have that, you know, potential home run of a startup, but you've got a lot more, you know, long-term focus. And so they've left us to be very independent. You know, the only connection point into Block is, you know, me reporting into Jeff. And so we've got a pretty amazing, unique situation, but of course you need to adjust always to the realities on the ground. And the reality is that the dynamic is different. And so, you know, we've got to change our, our playbook on how we do things because of that. Reflecting back, Kirk, is there something that you learned in this process of selling wave to block that you wish you would have known going in? Um, no, I, I really I think that process, you know, went incredibly smoothly and, and a lot to do with, you know, the great team that we have at wave and, and, um, and Peter Karish's help, uh, in, you know, through that process, I think, you know, it had been a long run. We had had some incredibly challenging times through the process and, you know, in hindsight, was I a little bit impatient, perhaps at the end, maybe certainly could not have predicted, obviously, the pandemic and, you know, what tech has done through the pandemic. But I think all in all, it was a really great run for us. Um, the exit was, you know, fair for both parties. And I think both parties have done well through the process. You know, I think that's what I'll take out of it. Um, has the pandemic been a bellwether for wave, would you say? Yeah, I think as I look at it, you know, there's, there's a, a couple things that stand out for me. I mean, number one, the, we're not an e-com company like Shopify. So we didn't have, you know, the tailwinds that they've had through the process. Many of our small business customers have been significantly hurt through the pandemic. And so, you know, as I look back on, on March, April, you know, 2020, I mean, it was a scary time for us you know, we went from high growth to, to no growth and that hadn't happened in, you know, years and years and years. Um, so, you know, again, an amazing partnership with Block meant that they were patient with us through the process. You know, we, we needed to do, continue to do some long-term thinking that was painful in the short term and they were very supportive of that. You know, as we started to, and as our businesses, our customers started to 
you know, come out of it, as more businesses started to be created, we started to see a lot more strength a lot sooner than we thought. I think it redoubled the efforts of, you know, the people that work at Wave to really support our customers. And I think that has been probably, you know, the best thing that's happened to us is as, you know, we at Wave and as the general population, I would say, have come to appreciate more and more small business owners uh, and their important role in our community. Uh, there's just been a, a redoubling of effort within the Wave team to say, how can we support these customers? How can we go faster and build more and and better support them? And And that's been amazing. The final thing I'll say on this is just obviously, you know, a huge impact on our employees. And I think our people and culture team led by Ashira have done an amazing job of really supporting our folks through this, but it's been a grind and it's been difficult. And so, you know, huge empathy for the, all of our people and, and, you know, the general population on just what everybody's going through and how, you know, companies need to adapt to, to better support their folks through this. Yeah. And speaking of culture, it's been a huge piece for Wave since the beginning. You've won numerous awards for leadership, innovation, and culture, including the Deloitte Fast 50 and Growth 500. It's a long list, so I won't name everything. Uh, you're also a two-time recipient of Canada's most admired corporate cultures. Can you just talk about what makes the Wave culture unique and the pillars that have made your company culture what it is today? And how has it changed in the wake of the pandemic? So if I go back and you look, probably, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here, um, if you look on the awards that we've won, there's a big difference between the awards that we won uh, in the early years, which were very much around, you know, fast growth and and probably kind of shitty culture where I think, you know, we really fit into the stereotype of, you know, two white founders who hired, you know, other white male engineers and you know really we were that startup um i i don't think we necessarily wanted to be that startup but it's kind of what we were in 2015 um you know we had no hr department we were probably you know 80 people and we didn't put value on any of those things in 2015 as we started to we came through a very very challenging uh 2014 and into early 2015, ultimately, James decided to leave the day-to-day -day running of the business and, and stay on the board. Uh, and I had some decisions to make around, you know, what we wanted to do both, you know, in our product to serve our customers and, and in our company on how we wanted to sort of behave and act. I met Ashira, who would go on to become our chief people officer we had great dialogues about ultimately what I wanted to create, but what I wasn't creating through the process. And, you know, her coming on and, you know, bringing on more diverse voices uh, within the company really transformed, I would say, our culture. We don't do everything right. Um, we have a high bar for continuing to get better. But I would say, you know, as of 2015 and onwards, we started to learn some of those lessons. We started to make some serious changes. And I think that's where you started to see, you know, the awards come in related to culture versus just growth uh, is post that period. I think we became much more values driven. They weren't on the wall anymore. They were actually being lived. 
Shira, I think one of the biggest impacts she had was she taught me how to be a more purposeful leader. And, um, and I think that's where the changes really started to happen around the culture. How does that happen in practice? Like, what does Ashira teach you to become a more purposeful leader? What does that mean? I think she um, empowered me. She she helped tap into, you know, who I was and what I wanted to drive, um, such that I understood it better. I could communicate it better, and I myself understood it better. And then, you know, really supported me in living that and, um, and putting it out into, you know, uh, into the company and, and living it. I don't know that it's more complicated than that. Um, I think through the process, you know, of being, you know, mildly successful in my career and then starting wave and having it really explode quite quickly. I mean, it's just, the growth that you have to go through in order to live up to that and to to continue to to improve such that you can keep up with the growth of the company is a big challenge and i think oftentimes i was overwhelmed by it i was i romanticized you know these venture capitalists in the US and how they would help me and and ultimately found and got comfortable with the fact that i needed to find my own voice i needed to trust my intuition. And, and I think she really helped me do that. And I think that was a huge unlock in so many different areas. Yeah. And it sounds like you've nailed it. I mean, you were also named one of Canada's most admired CEOs. How do you take this? Like, how do these awards resonate with you? Well, I would say I, I definitely haven't nailed it. I think, you know, we're all on a journey and you know, I'll give you a specific example. I mean, in 2020, when, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, you know, really came to a fore and, and we saw all of all of the, the protests and that kind of stuff. I mean, I had so much learning to do on, you know, how to handle that. And, you know, the the Black Waivers uh, group really came together and, and helped educate me on, you know, what was going on and how they felt and how we could do better. And so this is a, this is a consistent, continual learning curve to, to get better. Um, I think the award was, you know, obviously gratifying. I think the, the best part of it was, you know, there was an award ceremony where I could stand up and thank all of the people that get me there from my parents to my friends to my wife and of course to all of the waivers who just you know gave everything of themselves to help make this happen i do think that in our current environment and celebrity culture the ceo gets too much of the accolades for what is ultimately a team sport and i think waves a, an amazing example of that when great people who are you know, wired to help people come together and lock arms and do hard things together, amazing things can come out of it. And I think, you know, that is the story of Wave, not any one person. Yeah. And along these lines, you've said you're passionate about building these great teams and being around smart, creative and innovative people who give a damn, quote unquote, and you strive to build that culture at Wave. So how do you do that? And what's your vetting process for finding people who fit this mold? 
Well, I think the first thing is, is that, um, you know, at our size, the, the finding great people within the domains is happening within the domains themselves. So, you know, most of that credit goes to, you know, the teams that have developed, you know, playbooks on how we can, you know, find the best people in a fair and transparent way. I think what I'm, I was heavily influenced by when I, when I, when Adventure Lifestyle went bankrupt in 2000, I was $40,000 in debt. I had dropped out of university twice with no degree. Through the process of Adventure Lifestyle, I had attempted to have to manage different parts of the business. And so I felt like I wasn't great at any of them because I had had to be, you know, spread thin across many different departments. And so I really had no idea what the future held for me. I went into a, an interview uh, at a media company. Uh, this woman, Carolyn Meacher, was, you know, looking to hire somebody to run one of the departments. And, you know, after, let's say, 60 minutes, she gave me the job right away. And the next five years were the most formative, by far, part of my career, where Carolyn and then a subsequent uh, boss, Blair Graham, really taught me so much about leadership and uh, empowering people. And I just had an amazing run. And I felt like when I started to tap into, you know, really what I wanted to accomplish at Wave, it was that the people that worked at Wave would have that same experience working at Wave, meaning it would be one of the most formative parts of their career. And they would do, they would feel like they had done great work with great people and in, been empowered, you know, to bring great things to life. And so that is really, you know, what I strive for. I, I get upset when I feel like we're not, you know, accomplishing that for enough people when, you know, you get big and things get hard and politics come into play and things slow down and you feel like people are getting frustrated. I mean, that is the thing that probably bothers me the most, but that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. What has this whole experience meant to you as a father? And what advice do you now share with your kids that you'd otherwise perhaps not have shared, you know, pre-wave or pre-entrepreneur, I should say, that you share with them now? It's an amazing question. I think, um, you know, one of the, one of the challenges obviously of, of this, this run at wave of, you know, a decade plus has been, there were times where, you know, it was really busy. Um, and, and so your, you know, your involvement in home life takes, takes a bit of a hit. Uh, I was always pretty mindful of, you know, getting to their events when possible and all of those kinds of things, but it was, it was busy. And oftentimes there was a lot of travel involved, et cetera. And so, you know, obviously, you know, it, it puts a strain on a marriage and, and it takes an amazing partnership with your spouse, um, to, to make sure that we can hold it together in our home life. But I think what we both, what my wife and I both viewed as being important is that, you know, we kept our kids really in the loop about what was happening at wave and wave always had a policy of, you know, we would do summer events with not just employees, but also with families and their kids. Uh, we would try to do events around the holidays, um, to, to get the kids involved. And so, you know, it was trying to show them that we were doing something difficult and it would take a lot of grit and determination and trying to teach them that, that, 
you know, having something that you want to accomplish that's hard and really grinding it out and working hard to make that come to life is a good thing and trying to involve them in that process. Having dropped out of university twice, you know, how do I handle the question of, you know, whether or not they should go to university, you know, it worked out fine for me. That's an interesting dilemma where, you know, I, I hope that they do. I feel like a little bit, you know, I let myself down by not finishing it. And so I don't want them to make that same mistake. And yet I'm not a very good role model for that. Are there companies that you talk about at the dinner table with your kids that you admire? You know, we were talking a little bit about Shopify, obviously, before the interview um, and just the whole emergence of the tech scene here in Canada. Are there companies that you highlight and discuss with them? Um, I think, you know, first of all, I've had the pleasure of, you know, watching Shopify from the early days and, and getting to know Toby, you know, just a little bit. Obviously, you know, the success of that company is just mind numbing, especially, you know, yesterday, the announcement of their earnings and, you know, 110% or whatever growth at their scale is just absolutely incredible and just speaks to, you know, really strong execution uh, and just the way Toby thinks. He's just a very, I remember having a conversation with him early on as we were talking about early investors and boards and, and, how to choose them and that kind of stuff. And the way he explained how he did it in terms of just very systematic thinking was incredible to me because it's just not at all the way my brain works. And so clearly that has worked really well. I think, you know, one of the surprises, quite frankly, for me was uh, and has been Lightspeed. You know, I would I would describe them and and maybe, you know, they would disagree with this, but you know, some rocky times um, pre-IPO with Excel selling out of the business, um, which generally they don't want to do in high growth companies. But, you know, they they pull off the IPO and just since that time have clearly, you know, really found the model that works for them in terms of, you know, acquisitions and, and growing through that in that way that has been, you know, a huge uh, success in a way that I'm not sure that I would have predicted. And then, uh, you know, just all of the up and coming companies, what Mike Serbinus is doing at League, you know, as a second or third time, you know, entrepreneur, which is pretty remarkable. I've just joined the board of a company called Clipfolio out of Ottawa. It, you know, there's just so much going on in the tech landscape right now. Clio just announced a huge uh, raise. You've got the folks at ClearBank or now ClearCo who just announced. I mean, it's let, let me just quickly paint a picture of in 2010, everything that was happening in the Toronto ecosystem was celebrations of 20 to 30 to 40 million dollar sales and acquisitions. And I mean, just think of how much that's changed in 10 or 12 years is truly remarkable. Do you think there's anything that Canada could be doing better or should be doing better to nurture innovation, to nurture this wave of entrepreneurship, pun intended, um, that we're seeing here? So I'm not a big believer in the government or uh, politicians or, or any of those things. Um, I don't truly believe they have a huge role to play in all of this other than you know, lay the foundation and and make sure that our policies are such that 
you know, entrepreneurs want to take chances and, you know, a whole bunch of things don't get in their way. But other than that, I really think this is, you know, on the entrepreneur and on the ecosystem in general to, you know, think bigger, support each other, you know, be ambassadors for, you know, this ecosystem and what we're all trying to do, make sure that you give back uh, all of those things. I think that is what is what drives this uh, less so than anything to do with with government. I think the flywheel, once it starts going, you know, is really powerful. And I think now we're really getting that effect. And that will do way more for the ecosystem than any government or, you know, program can do. Waveapps.com for more on Wave and everything you guys are building. Kirk, where else can people connect with you? Probably best is Twitter at TK Simpson uh, would be the best spot to, uh, to stay in touch. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate you being here today. Really appreciate being here, Adam. Thanks. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric acid.